Hi everybody, Liam here. Before we jump into this week's Q&A, I just want to let you know that I'm doing a live taping of this podcast coming up soon and you're all invited. It's going down on October 9th at the main branch of Oakland's Public Library. The topic is the history of BART and I'll be talking with Mike Healy, who wrote a book all about his many decades as BART's official spokesperson. We'll be discussing BART's impact on various East Bay neighborhoods, plus scandals, strikes, and some of the really bizarre, outrageous stories that Mike revealed in his book. Oh, and the event is free, so the price is right. Anyway, I've got all the details up on the event page of my website, eastbayyesterday.com. Hope you can make it. Also, stay tuned for the credits of this episode if you want to hear my personal shout-outs to all my new Patreon supporters. You guys are the best. I wouldn't be able to keep doing East Bay Yesterday without you. Okay, so today's interview is all about the 50th anniversary of the Berkeley Free Clinic. This organization is really unique for a bunch of reasons. First of all, the name, Berkeley Free Clinic, it's not a joke. They really provide free medical services. Uh, Everything from acute primary care to STI testing to dental work, and uh, most of it's done by volunteers. Uh, Even if you have no healthcare experience, you can join one of their programs, get trained, and learn skills that you would normally have to go to medical school or dental school for. Uh, One more thing, this is a non-hierarchical collective, so every member has an equal voice in running the operation. The BFC has taken a really radical, hands-on approach to dealing with America's healthcare crisis, and they've been doing it for about half a century now. Most organizations of this nature don't last nearly this long, so I wanted to find out how they've done it. And here to answer my questions today are two Berkeley Free Clinic volunteers, Scott Carroll and Clay Carter. Uh, I should also add that Scott is on the clinic's board. We talk about everything from the clinic's origins during the hippie era to the challenges of surviving on a shoestring budget amidst the East Bay's ridiculously expensive real estate market. So stay tuned. This is East Bay Yesterday Q&A. I'm your host, Liam O'Donohue. Here we go. Who started the Berkeley Free Clinic and what was their vision? What were they trying to do that was different than what other healthcare organizations were providing at the time? Clay? I think... uh The Berkeley Free Clinic really started not as the Berkeley Free Clinic, but as the Berkeley Free Church. It was actually in 1967. So there was kind of a two-year period when they were kind of trying to gather the resources and the community support to actually open a real functional brick-and-mortar clinic. So it was a group of business leaders like Fred Cody, who owned Cody's Books, was an important member in what was at the time called the Berkeley Free Church. Uh, obviously collaborating with different religious leaders. So this was like a multi-denominational organization then, or? Correct. Yeah, the idea, calling it the Free Church, I guess wasn't actually its official title. The official title was the South 
campus community ministry or organization, depending on what documents you're looking at. So it was uh, certainly non-denominational, and people just started calling it the people who were, well, the people they were serving. So there was a unique clientele in Berkeley in 1967. This is the era of the um, Summer of Love. And so in San Francisco, in the hate, you see this influx of tens of thousands of young people. Um, at any given time, there were 15,000, um, I guess, essentially hippies living in the hate. And there was kind of a similar movement of, of young people, the Telegraph Avenue area of Berkeley. And so this ministry was established to serve those people. So yeah. not just the college students, but also a lot of the teenage runaways and other people that had come to the Bay Area in that time during the Summer of Love era. Yeah, it was very much about serving the the population that was coming to Berkeley, not for college. So it really was about the, you know, the activist community or the population that was attracted to Berkeley because of the publicity around the free speech movement and the anti-war movement and that kind of stuff. And the Free Church did a lot of really interesting things. They did a lot of innovative things. It was Reverend York was the uh, minister in charge. And they they did things like a housing list. So people who didn't have a place to stay would call in and or come into this center in Berkeley and um, sign up saying they were looking for a place to crash. And then people who had extra room and wanted to take people in would call in and and say, I've got this much space, and people can come in. And there were also switchboards going on at that time in Berkeley. Um, so there was an LGBTQ center um, switchboard. Actually, it wasn't a center yet. It was just the switchboard um, that was operating down by San Pablo. And then the Free Church also did a switchboard for referral stuff. And the clinic services were also very much organized by a group of three young women who were in the Graduate School of Social Welfare at UC Berkeley. And those three women got together to do an assessment of community needs around healthcare and put together a plan for what a clinic could be. And when you read their original proposal, it really is very clear that it's talking about these young people who are not able to access financially um, and culturally not able to access um, uh, health services through the traditional medical structures in Berkeley. And at that time, that was Herrick Hospital, was the main hospital in Berkeley. There's like a fantastic thesis on this by uh, Nikki Nibe, but um, they discuss that Herrick Hospital, like that's where a lot of young people in Berkeley were being sent, but its ambulance service was run by the police department. A lot, a lot of its um, reimbursement claims for emergency services were processed through the police department as well, which means that if you were, say, scared that you were dying during a bad acid trip, if you went to their Herrick Hospital Emergency Department, you would get on some Berkeley Police Department uh, list or something. So people were disincentivized from using mainstream health resources, and that's just one example, but there's many examples like that. And as you mentioned, a lot of these people were runaways, uh, and that's a kind of, you know, an imprecise term, obviously, but it was typically applied to people from this population who were under 18 years old. So they were minors, and so if they were identified as minors, then they might be put into some runaway program, which I know there were a couple in San Francisco that were, you know, quite uh, unpleasant for people. So you mentioned that business leaders in Berkeley were instrumental in getting the Berkeley Free Clinic off the ground. Um, 
I'm a little surprised to hear that because one doesn't necessarily always think of, you know, quote unquote, business leaders as being allies or supportive of the countercultural elements of the time, you know, hippies, street kids, etc. Um, what kind of people in the business community were, were involved with this? Two of the most influential people were Fred and Pat Cody, who owned Cody's books. And Fred and Pat saw this huge need in the population and wanted to do stuff to help. They did. They were very involved with the early um, organizing, uh, along with the students that we mentioned, and with the Free Church. And they also did a ton around fundraising. And um, at Pat's uh, memorial service a number of years ago, her son talked about sitting at the kitchen table counting change that the street collectors uh, would collect. And if you're old enough and you grew up in Berkeley or lived in Berkeley, you'll remember that in front of the food co-op and in front of other places in Berkeley, there would be street collectors with a little white box that people would stuff money into. And it had a little red cross on it and it said Berkeley Free Clinic. And so these street collectors would then bring their money back to the clinic or and Fred and Pat would bring it home and then count this change and separate it on their kitchen table. Oh, it doesn't get more, much more grassroots than that. Yeah. So how did this organization of uh, church leaders and business leaders and healthcare providers morph from the Berkeley uh, Free Church into the Berkeley Free Clinic? I, I read somewhere that it had to do, or this happened around the time of the People's Park riots. Um, is there a connection there between those two events? Yeah, so the People's Park protests happened in May, and some of the writing that I've seen says that uh, the clinic opened two weeks earlier than planned. Meaning um, that it opened early in order to serve the people that the people were being were... injured in the street battles? Exactly. And we know that after that, there. so the People's Park uh, protests continued, and even after the clinic moved from its first location, which was on Parker and Fulton, to um, Continuation High School that was no longer in service, that was up closer to Channing and Telegraph. And when they were in that space, uh, the police actually came into the building to go after protesters who were going in there for medical services. And the, the legend is that they threw, actually the newspaper reports, mm -hmm. is that they threw an x-ray machine down the stairs. The police threw an x-ray machine yeah. down the stairs. And struggling to get to people, and that several people who were on staff were injured. Well, you know, that brings up a good point, which is that I know that there was a lot of people in Berkeley at the time who were not happy about this influx of countercultural elements, you know, hippies, minors, uh, people using drugs and getting into the whole rock and roll scene. There was a lot of conservative folks in Berkeley at the time who just wanted this quote unquote problem to go away. And I'm guessing they weren't thrilled about the fact that there was a new clinic opening to provide free service to these people to essentially facilitate their lifestyles and, and their health and their ability to stay in Berkeley. So what was that relationship like between um, the kind of Berkeley establishment and the Berkeley Free Clinic in, in that early era? The Berkeley Free Clinic had to get a, a permanent permit. So it, like as Scott was saying, it had to move around a little bit. Its permanent location, it moved in December 1970, it moved permanently into its current location, which is 2339 Durant Avenue in Berkeley. But getting the permanent permit from the city for that location was challenged by a lot of the people on Durant, you know, pretty major historical locations on Durant. Um, 
Right, not unlike when you know people try to open a, a homeless, uh, like a navigation facility or something like that now in, in San Francisco or in the East Bay. We should point out, though, that the location that we're in is the basement of a giant church. And so it was a church community that was actually welcoming this organization in. Uh, and they don't put any limits in terms of the types of activities that we do in there either. They never check on us about... Um, you know, are are you doing X, Y, and Z, or we don't want you doing these types of things. It's a very strong relationship, um, but a hands-off relationship from the church, and they were welcoming about bringing us in. Right, and, and I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I just wanted to, you know, bring up the fact that you are doing, or the Berkeley Free Clinic is doing things like providing health care for undocumented people, um, which is potentially controversial and, um, you know, could be seen in some political context as liability. So that's really, I think, worth noting that the church uh, is welcoming to the Berkeley Free Clinic and its activities. Yeah, and, and another thing that we do is we've, uh, over, when we have the supply, we supply, supply Narcan to populations. So we actually have a lot of harm reduction programs, and their harm reduction is much more um, accepted now. But even in the early days of needle exchange, um, the church was fine with us housing uh, the supplies for the Berkeley's needle exchange program in our facility. And so we've been able to help other organizations over the years just because of the relationship, the good relationship with the church. It wasn't just, I mean, obviously the Trinity Methodist Church welcomed the free clinic in. But the reason why the, the Berkeley Free Clinic got this permit is because there was so much support from other organizations in the community, community organizations as well, but also people within city government like uh, Isabel Wiseman was someone who worked with the Berkeley Free Clinic and uh, she worked with the mental health um, public health department. But that was something that continued through our entire history was our survival kind of depends on building lasting and helpful relationships with other community organizations that kind of share our values. All right. Once again, you're listening to my interview with Berkeley Free Clinic volunteers Scott Carroll and Clay Carter. The BFC is hosting a 50th anniversary celebration coming up on August 24th. And we're going to talk about that and a whole lot more in the next segment. But I do want to acknowledge that it hasn't been a smooth road over the past few decades. Just like any collective, the Berkeley Free Clinic has had eras with lots of infighting. They've had huge debates over questions regarding professionalism, how to best serve the community, racial issues, privilege, you name it. Some of these fights got pretty nasty, but the organization has survived. So that's where we're going to pick up the interview, by looking at lessons they've learned along the way. Stay tuned. So what you're describing here, these different factions, these different cultural shifts, um, these are things that have historically torn apart a lot of collectives in, in the Bay Area, in the left in general, and, and really everywhere. Um, you know, we see these uh, splits happen and most collectives never recover. Both you guys having been familiar, being familiar with the history of the Berkeley Free Clinic, how do you think, you know, it's survived this long, 50 years? Are there any lessons that other collectives or even healthcare organizations can learn from the success of the BFC in surviving all these tumultuous times? Having been involved with the clinic since 1993, I've seen a lot of people come and go. And it's the people that pull people together that really 
get the organization to move ahead in new directions um, versus the people that try and divide. And so I think that's one thing that organizations can learn from. I think something else that we can look at, too, is even though with the split in the early 80s, I think it was, um, the people who were more about moving towards a professional model, they actually were very successful and worked on setting up some of the local clinic uh, services in Berkeley um, through Lifelong Health. And uh, so they're actually, you know, it's not necessarily a bad outcome on both sides. Um, there are two strong clinics working in Berkeley now. Um, one is a federally qualified health center, and the other one is a free clinic that serves a lot of people that can't access government-funded services or uh, federally government-funded services. <laughs> There's a pretty funny um, paper written about the free clinic in 1983, and it's I think it's by a Dr. Fletcher. He was a he was a, a military MD doing a master's or something, and he comes in and it's 1983, and he says, "The Berkeley Free Clinic is a 60s anachronism. It'll be it'll I'll be shocked if it exists next year." And this is this is in the wake of Prop 13, which devast That's another major I think that. To me, that's like a watershed moment in the history of the of the free clinic. The point is, this kind this Fletcher guy was saying this is a '60s anachronism, 35 years ago, and it's still going. I think. A, I mean, this is a very like one cynical take is that you know it's in a city full of very idealistic and like passionate people. So I think it's the fact that we live in Berkeley that is the only thing keeping this thing propped up because yes, it is anachronistic. You know, it is, it's very much this, it's almost like a living museum. And that's what, like, when I go there, that's what's so exciting. And that's when I started, I was, I, I first saw the free clinic when I was 17 years old. I was like, I know I want to go there because everything about it, it's like, you're in a, you're in a, like a living history. There's the red star room, which has, it's like that, it's like pays homage to our Maoist forefathers. It's a star, it has the Chinese flag. Exactly. Forefathers and mothers and, and people. Um, but there's all these little things that you see around the clinic that are like, wow, there's like some really, this is, this shouldn't exist, but it does. You know, it's interesting that you, um, you know, refer to it as this kind of relic of the 60s, which you admit that it is, of course, because it's held on to so many of its idealistic values from that era, which I think is very unique because a lot of, uh, you know, conservative people or, you know, other critics of the 60s can look back and enumerate numerous ways that the the 60s were a failure or that they created this backlash that gave us Nixon and Reagan, et cetera, and the conservative wave that swept over the country over the past half century. But there are examples like the Berkeley Free Clinic of these places that kind of were founded on these radical values of non-hierarchical collectivism and providing free healthcare services. And you've provided dental care and uh, STD tests and free clean needles and all these various things to people for generations now. And, and that's something that's really special. I, one of the things that makes us able to last through these types of transitions, either, you know, tax cuts like the Prop 13, um, the the cigarette tax, we used to get cigarette tax and money, and that would cover all of our dental services. And it was really easy paperwork, and you could turn it in and be able to get a lot of support. Not that we're for smoking, but we were very appreciative of the money. Yeah. And it, It's a nice silver lining. Yeah, and it allowed us to continue to do a lot of work, and we brought in a lot of money. At that point, we were being, we were actually paying dentists to do the dental services, 
when we lost that money, because we're a collective, because we're very flexible, we were actually able to vote and say, we don't have the money to continue paying dentists. We have to find volunteer dentists. And there were people who thought that wouldn't be possible. And it's completely possible. We have a full set of dental providers that are coming in um, five days a week right now providing dental services for free. We're running two dental chairs a night, and we're hoping to have three dental chairs running uh, pretty soon. So you really can, if you do the right recruitment, you can pull in the right people. Um, staffing our clinic right now, the only people that are getting paid are our janitors that work about four hours a day. And then our bookkeeper, um, or bookkeepers, we're going to have a few more coming on board. Um, and our funding coordinator right now is able to get paid. There are very few of us that um, would be, uh, you know, in line to be making money off of doing this. And nobody is making a living wage off of this. Everybody's working very part-time doing this. So it really is a labor of love for the people that are involved in it. And there are, people, there are people who've been involved since 19. We have one volunteer who's been involved since 73-ish, I think, um, Dr. Fred Strauss. Um, a gentleman named John Day worked with uh, Fred to start the Gay Men's Health Collective in 1976, which is a clinic that still runs every Sunday, run by um, queer uh, folks on Sunday nights doing STD services. Um, so there are people who've been at the clinic for many, many years who continue volunteering. So it's a place where we have a lot of turnover, but it's also a place where people who have a passion often find a place where they can stick around. I don't think it's an over-exaggeration to say that America has been in a healthcare crisis for many years now. Um, so many people can't afford medication, you know, hospitalization, etc. Is there anything that the healthcare world in general can learn from this model? Uh, Clay, you mentioned that you feel like you know this kind of model works in Berkeley because it's there's such a high concentration of idealistic, passionate people. Could this work in other places potentially, or are there elements of the free clinic model uh, that could work in other places or at a larger scale? The free clinic model is essentially a band-aid on a broken system. Do I think that if there were a you know 10,000 Berkeley free clinics that we'd have a functional healthcare system? No. I mean, we obviously need to develop more imagination and also a, a bit like a more disciplined way of thinking about these problems. Part of my project this summer was I read through all of the newsletters from the administrative collective. So it, uh, it may have given me... Uh, um, so these are newsletters from the 1970s? Correct. But there's a, there's a funny line, which is uh, consistency, colon, struggling with the same contradictions year after year. And I think what reading through those newsletters helped me do was identify the things that they were struggling back then are still struggles for us as a free clinic. So, like... Scott mentioned, like, we rely exclusively on volunteers. Volunteerism can be a challenge, and it's problematic in a lot of ways. You know, who, who gets to dedicate hours without pay? And it, it sometimes limits community engagement. Um, professionalism. This is another contradiction that we always have to deal with. Like, are we just using this site to uh, improve our education or improve our professional development. There's a lot of pre-medical people, there was a lot of pre-dental people, and on some level, are you recreating or reinforcing sort of systems of domination or oppression for our community that they experience in other places? Other, you know, you want to make sure that you get donations. What, the third contradiction that I look at in this paper, so there's volunteerism, professionalism. The third one is, is donations, making sure that, uh, you know, every, all donations, whether it's from the government, private foundations, or 
from philanthropists tend to have strings attached. And you need to be able to recognize how that changes the nature of your clinic and wrestle with that. And essentially, it's, it's struggling with these contradictions. Uh, that's what they were doing in the 70s. And I think working at the Berkeley Free Clinic, it challenges us to do that. It challenges us to, you know, we're not just some charity. We're not just some neutral good. We, we really have to struggle to make sure that we're really serving our community in the best way. And that that is hard. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and it it often requires like a lot of study, lots right? Because not everyone agrees on what the best way is to serve the community. Correct. And and so uh, you're asking how do we apply this or how do we use the lessons here? Um, I guess it would be looking for systems of of I don't know domination or oppression and seeing like how can we struggle to improve these. And I think what's cool in the focus of my paper is looking at how the 70s, they really turned that inward and looked at how does volunteerism reinforce structures of oppression? How does professionalism reinforce structures of oppression? How does donorism do that as well? I think applying that mindset can help us be more critical and more effective in changing the system we have now. So that's, that's what I enjoyed reading this summer in those newsletters. I just saw this uh, article in the San Francisco Chronicle about two weeks ago regarding the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic closing its doors um, after 52 years. What are some of the biggest challenges facing the free clinic model or free clinics in America or in the Bay Area right now? Because I'm sure that it's, it's never easy, and I would imagine, yeah, that there's, that there's quite a laundry list of challenges that you guys are, are always dealing with. One of the biggest is clearly real estate. And when you look at prices, we're in a building that's not seismically sound. So we know that we're going to have to move out of this property. If you climb up into the tower of the church, it's a beautiful structure, but you can literally put your finger into the concrete wall upstairs because it's so deteriorated. So we know that we need to get out of that building at some point soon. And for us to get the equivalent square footage that we have for medical services right now, it would cost us $290,000 a year to rent. Um, we pay about $2,000 a month right now for rent. So we're getting an incredibly good deal for a huge amount of space in downtown Berkeley, close to the volunteer population, close to 14 lines of public transportation. So. It's going to be very tough when we have to move to think about how do we continue to allow access to our services when we probably will have to move a lot further from the area that we're in right now. And the cost for medical supplies and, and antibiotics and stuff like that just keep going up. Looking back over the last 50 years, if you could kind of get in the minds of the people that started the Berkeley Free Clinic back then in the late 60s and compare what your knowledge of their their vision for the clinic is to how it's actually played out over all these years and, and what it's become now, how do you think that lines up? You know, what do you think they were envisioning as in, in the big picture, not just providing the direct services, but as a political project? And how does that align with the way that the Free Clinic has operated on the ground? I think they would be surprised that we're still, that there's still as much need as there is. And I think there was a lot of hope and desire that things would change in society, um, that we were moving in a direction where we wouldn't need a free clinic. Was there anything you wanted to add, Clay? Yeah, I mean, what there was a, a vision, you know, a free clinic movement, which is 
uh, back in the in the 60s, the the OEO or the Office of Economic Opportunity, which I guess is now the Department of Education and Welfare, something, um, it's a big federal agency. It was opening federally qualified health centers all over the country and investing a lot in the war on poverty, right? And they modeled a lot of these federally qualified health centers off of community clinics that originated, well, there's, there's migrant health centers and there's urban health centers, um, but they, there was this sort of community health model that got adopted on a large scale by the federal government. And I think if you look into the National Free Clinic Council's conventions, if you look in their minutes, they have a vision of, of kind of a similar, like the government adopting this model as a way of drug intervention like a, a more personal way to deal with the explosion of drug use in, among young people. So D Dr. David Smith, in particular in the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic, that was kind of their vision, was that they would become more more like a legit sort of federally qualified health center model that would be in every American large American city as sort of a more... Um, uh, maybe a less punitive, uh, right. less way. judgmental. Maybe there would have been less of a war on drugs. I think if they saw how how our society has dealt with drug abuse, you know, Dr. David Smith is obviously seeing it, uh, and you could probably ask him. But uh, uh, I assume they would be horrified. You know, they had this vision of this kind of system of down to earth, non judgmental spaces where people could get the care that they needed. And uh, that didn't come to be. Before I let you guys go, Scott, Clay, can you tell me a little bit about the 50th anniversary celebration coming up on August 24th? Where is it at? Who's going to be there? What should people know if they're interested in attending? Well, it's, it's going to be in Live Oak Park. And we're going to start with some music at 2 o'clock. But the main activities are going to be at 4.30. And it's a beautiful park with a big, giant lawn on the north end of the park. And we're going to have a stage with musicians. Um, uh, several are former Berkeley Free Clinic volunteers, such as Adam Rowland, uh, who's a transgender activist and a great folk singer. Um, and so Adam's going to be performing. Blackberry, who is involved with our Gay Men's Health Collective, is going to be performing. He's a very well-known um, African-American folk singer um, and musician here in the Bay Area um, who has been involved in um, the queer, uh, queer activism for many, many years. And... Um, We've got, I'm trying to remember some of the other bands. Um, we've got... Well, I'll, people can look it up on the yeah. website, right? What's yeah. the website again? www.berkeleyfreeclinic.org. And also coming uh, for the event are Ellen Coteen and Susan Katie McAllister, um, two of the founders, and David Smith, Dr. David Smith, who started the Haight-Ashbury Clinic and the Free Clinic Movement. And they'll be talking a little about the history of free clinics from the stage, and you'll get to meet them. Very cool, very cool. So August 24th at Live Oak Park, the 50th anniversary of the Berkeley Free Clinic. Scott Carroll, Clay Carter, thanks a ton for uh, joining me today on East Bay SJ, you guys. Um, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, thanks again to Scott Carroll and Clay Carter for talking with me and to all the Berkeley Free Clinic volunteers for doing what you do. Special shout out to Nandita Krishna for putting me in touch with Clay and Scott. Uh, if you want to see photos related to this episode, check out eastbayyesterday.com. Massive thanks to the people supporting East Bay Yesterday through Patreon. I'm so grateful to each and every one of you. 
uh, this podcast can only exist through listener support. So if you're not a donor yet, uh, but you want to keep hearing new episodes, please go to my website, throw down a few dollars if you can afford it. Here are some of the folks who recently jumped on board the East Bay Yesterday supporter train and are helping to keep the show strong. All right, big thank you to Mark McDonald, Abraham Svoboda, Scott Nelson, Andrew Berger, Lindsay Bichelle, Jason Mays, Therese Noonan, Kristen Berger, Timothy Vollmer, Craig Casebeer, Jeff Delbono, Lauren Tompkins, Dorothy Lundgren, Sean Sexton, Cheryl Brown, Kristen Lundgren, John Vogel, Kathleen McCarthy, Neil Gilfeder, Stephen Lawton, Kelly Kuneik, Emily O, and Sarah Hahn. All right. Thanks to all of you. And uh, also, don't forget to follow East Bay Yesterday on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And hey, if you like the episode, please spread the word about it. And uh, tag me if you do. All right. You can subscribe to East Bay Yesterday on Spotify, uh, Stitcher, Overcast, all those podcast apps. The original music that you heard on this episode was produced by Justin Lee. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back soon with more episodes of East Bay Yesterday.